Section 30 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Fourth Decade, Chapter 2, The Prince of Wales and Aquitaine in Spain, Part 2. The King of Navarre had already signed an agreement with the new King of Castile, by which he undertook to prevent the invading forces from entering Spain through his dominions. This presented a formidable obstacle, for such was the difficulty of the passes over the Pyrenees that a handful of resolute men could have held them against a host, and the only other way by which an army could enter Spain lay through the territory of the King of Aragon, the firm ally of Henry of Trastamar. But the King of Navarre, with characteristic falseness and venality, meeting the Parliament of Aquitaine within a short time after his engagement with Henry, then and there solemnly covenanted to allow the troops of the Black Prince to cross unopposed, in consideration of the payment of 250,000 gold florins and the cession of the province of Gipuzkoa. The companies, who had previously joined the standard of Henry of Trastamar, were for the most part liegemen as well as old soldiers of the Black Prince, and fondly remembering their former fellowship in honorable and victorious arms, needed little more than a hint from him to change sides and join the invading forces. A strong reinforcement arrived from England under John of Gaunt, now Duke of Lancaster, in right of his wife, for he had married Blanche, daughter and heiress of the great duke, and her father had fallen a victim to the second outbreak of the plague in 1361. News now reached the English camp that Charles the Bad was again making overtures to Henry. To trust him further was hopeless, so the prince ordered two frontier towns of Navarre to be occupied with English troops and compelled the king himself to accompany the army through the passes of the Pyrenees. In 1367 they threaded the pass of Roncesvalles, where neither Charlemagne nor all his peerage fell, as Milton has it, but where his rear guard was cut off by the Basques and Gascons. The prince's army encountered no human opposition, but were nearly overwhelmed by a terrible snowstorm in the pass. At length, however, they arrived with little loss on the borders of Castile, though they had been deprived of the guidance of the King of Navarre, who was taken prisoner, under circumstances giving rise to more than a suspicion, that an understanding existed between himself and his captors. Here a messenger met them from Henry of Trastamar with a letter saying that he had no doubt that the prince had come to fight a battle with him, and inquiring at what place he meant to enter Castile, that he might be there to receive him. Truly, said the prince, in reading the letter, this bastard Henry is a valiant knight of great prowess. He then advanced to and occupied Salvatierra, where Pedro could hardly be withheld from slaughtering the garrison. In the meantime, Henry, whose herald had been allowed to return, uncertain as to the movements of the invaders, and waiting for the arrival of Du Guesclin and his company, sent out his brother Teillo, with six thousand men to reconnoitre and attempt the surprise of the English. Teillo fell in with three several detachments of the prince's army, and after putting them one after another fairly to the rout, 
returned in safety to his quarters. The camp of Henry was wild with exultation, and the troops clamored to be led against the enemy. But a tried and valiant marshal ventured to warn his master not to trust too blindly to the superiority of numbers, or their first success over the prince's troops, for, said he, they are the flower of all the chivalry of the world, and will die sooner than yield. Be led by me, and stop the passes against their supplies, and you will not have to strike a blow, for they will perish by cold and hunger. But the black prince was once more destined to owe salvation and victory to the impatient folly of his enemies in not leaving him to starve. He advanced toward Vittoria, hoping that this would be the scene of the decisive struggle, and here he waited six days for tidings of the enemy, his supplies melting away, his troops perishing by exposure, and his situation hourly becoming more critical. But Vittoria was still to wait four centuries and more for its renown as a battlefield, and the prince crossing the river Ebro in search of better camping ground took up his quarters at Navarrete on the right bank of the river. Meanwhile, Henry of Trastamar, deaf to all suggestions except the prompting of his own reckless courage, no sooner received certain information of the position of the enemy than he broke up his camp, crossed the Ebro, and marched down its right bank till brought up by the Naharia, an affluent of the Ebro, and which now separated the two armies. His forces consisted of 70,000 men. The three divisions were led by Duguesclin, Teyo, and himself. The English army numbered only 27,000, and its three corresponding divisions were headed by the Prince of Wales, the Captal de Bouche, and the young Duke of Lancaster, with whom was John of Chandos, who never left his side through the battle, as in former battles he had always been at the right hand of the Black Prince. The last-named division and that of Duguesclin first engaged, while Don Pedro and the prince advanced upon the wing commanded by Tello. A sudden panic seized upon Tello, who had borne himself so bravely a few days before, and without waiting for the onset of the English men-at-arms, he turned and fled from the field with two thousand horse. The prince then assailed the main body of the enemy, he was received with a storm of stones from the Balearic slingers of the King of Aragon, who were to the Spanish army what the long bowmen were to the English. But the English archers proved superior to those as to all other marksmen, and under the deadly shot of their arrows, the Spanish lines began to waver and to give ground. Then the men-at-arms bore down upon their broken front, and a furious hand-to-hand -hand contest ensued between the ironclad horsemen of the prince and the tens of thousands of the Spanish infantry. The Spaniards fought bravely, their enormous superiority of numbers did not fail to tell, and it was long impossible to forecast the issue of the struggle or say to which side victory inclined. Sir John Chandos, equally hard-pressed by Duguesclin, and the heavy-armed cavalry of the companies, had at length been borne to the ground by a gigantic Castilian who lay upon him and was about to give him his death-blow, when the gallant old knight drew a dagger from his bosom and stabbed his adversary to the heart. Then rising up unwounded, he remounted his horse 
and gathering his best lances round him, charged, broke, and put to flight Du Guesclin's force, and once more made that famous captain his prisoner. This was the turning point of the battle. Sir John Chandos's division, thus set free, assaulted the main body of the enemy in flank, and the fight raged with renewed fury round King Henry and the Prince of Wales. Three times were the Spaniards' troops broken and driven back, and three times he rallied his forces and hurled them against the English line. But all was in vain. The flight of Tello had been a fatal omen. The capture of Duguesclin completed the discouragement of the Spaniards, and they no longer fought as men fight who are animated with the hope of victory. The battle was clearly lost, and Henry rode from the field, leaving six thousand of his followers dead upon the ground. Don Pedro, in whom reason seems to have been obscured, by the long indulgence of homicidal instincts, put to death in cold blood all but one of the Castilian nobles whom he had got into his power, and was prevented only by force from immolating the two thousand prisoners who fell into the hands of the Black Prince. After the victory of Navarrete, Burgos opened its gates to the Allies, and deputies from the several provinces hastened to tender their allegiance to their former sovereign, while tournaments, banquets, and processions celebrated the reinstatement of the bloodthirsty tyrant of Castile. But now arose the anxious question of money, and Pedro, when called upon for the covenanted payment of the expenses of his allies, protested his good faith and begged permission to repair to Seville to raise the necessary funds, with a solemn promise that he would return before Whitsuntide. By imprudently consenting to this proposal, the prince lost all hold over his faithless protégé. Whitsuntide came, and three weeks more passed, but there were no tidings of Pedro. Sickness broke out in the English camp, and it is said that no less than four out of every five of the soldiers perished. The prince himself had an attack of illness attributed by many to poison, from which, whatever may have been its cause, he never afterwards recovered. Messengers were at length dispatched to Seville, who brought back such an answer as showed at once that no good faith or gratitude was to be looked for from the treacherous Castilian. At the same time, intelligence came from the Princess of Wales that Henry of Trastamar had invaded Aquitaine, and so, after a brief but brilliant campaign, crowned with a victory which alone would have made a lesser name illustrious, the Black Prince withdrew through the defiles of Roncesvalles to his own dominions, broken in spirits, shattered in constitution, overwhelmed with debt, and leaving behind him four-fifths of his gallant army dead on Spanish ground. End of Section 30